Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I have a very bizarre woman I want to tell you about. But before I get started, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. This is a hobby that I love doing. Um, I just enjoy it. So thanks for listening. Don't forget about Storytime Slayer on Facebook. That is my Facebook page where I post all the photos, videos, and any kind of information pertaining to each case every week to that format. Also, don't forget to leave me a review, preferably five stars, but honesty is always the best policy. Okay, guys, let's jump in. So our victim is Frank Rodriguez, and he was a very healthy man. He was very well-liked, a devout Pentecost, a man after the Lord's own heart. He was an ex-military man who had longed to have a family of his own with a good woman, but things just hadn't worked out until he met a single mother named Angela. She too was a woman after the Lord's own heart. And people tried to warn Frank that Angie was no saint. She was a wolf in sheep clothing, which I'll get to. But Frank ignored the warnings and said people who didn't have a love for the Lord the way that he and Angie did, they just wouldn't understand. The two had a very short whirlwind romance before they got married. And only four months after their vows did seemingly healthy Frank drop dead. It was a homicide that Angie could have gotten away with, but she got a little bit too greedy. So Frank was born in El Paso, Texas, February 16th, 1959. He was the second of six children. His father was from Mexico and his father was actually a doctor in Mexico, but in the United States, that meant nothing. The family was pretty nomadic. So his dad moved Frank and his family from Texas to Mexico for a few years, then all the way up to Maine a few years later. And the family was actually living in Lincoln, Illinois, when Frank's father just abandoned them and walked away from his whole family and moved to Florida and never came back. Lacking structure, Frank decided to join the military where he was stationed in California. He met a woman and they got married, but it didn't last long at all. Around the time Frank finished his military duties, he was divorced. He decided to go ahead and stay in California, actually. Frank worked odd jobs, and he joined the National Guard. This is how he heard about a job overseeing children at what was known as the Angel Gate Academy. So Angel Gate Academy was a reform school program for um, unruly middle school students, and Frank loved this job, and this is where he met his second wife, Angela. Although Frank didn't have a fairy tale childhood, he made it out okay and he had a really good life. Everyone had great things to say about Frank. No one had a bad word. He was a nice man. But unlike Frank, Angie was not nice and people had very few good things to say about her. So Angie was born May 31st of 1968 in New York and she grew up in the ghetto. Far Rockaway and Queens. Apparently, this is like the ghetto of ghettos. Okay, so she grew up in the projects, an 11 story building with 402 residents on a three acre complex. She primarily lived with her older sister and mother, 
And I think she saw her father sometimes, but he was a really bad alcoholic and not a steady figure in her life. Her mom was a nurse and her mom did her best, even paying for her kids to go to private school. But on Monday nights, Angie and her sister and some of their cousins would actually go to their grandpa's while Angie's mom went on a weekly bingo game night. (laughs) But Angie's dear old grandpa was a child molester. And he started off, this is kind of much guys, but he started off, he would jack off in front of the girls and he'd adamantly apologize when he was done. And then he'd promise it would never happen again and give them something special like a prize. But the acts escalated and eventually they led to full on intercourse between Angie and her grandpa. And Angie was young. She knew it wasn't right, but she didn't know exactly what was bad about it because she was just a child. And when she tried to tell her grandma what was going on, her grandma literally died a week after. So she then tries to tell her uncle and a week after she tells her uncle, he died too. Next, she tried to tell her cousin, but he asked her to demonstrate on him what was happening with her grandpa. And so eventually Angie actually quit trying to tell anyone and went on with it, knowing her grandpa would get her whatever her heart desired in exchange for doing what he asked her to. And as she got older, she actually learned to use her looks and charm to manipulate men into doing what she wanted. And they think this is likely because she was kind of trained by her awful grandpa at a young age. That is an awful upbringing. So Angie had actually been married three times before she met Frank. She got married once at 19 to a man named Hector. And this relationship lasted less than a year. And soon after, Angie moved to Florida and joined the military. Ooh, that was such a surprise to me. So during her time in the military, she met her second husband named Tom. And within three months of being together, they were pregnant. The couple got married in June of 1990. And it wasn't too long after giving birth to her daughter, Autumn, that the couple had a second child named Alicia in 1993. However, Alicia passed away as an infant from choking on a pacifier that Gerber had recalled. Angie filed a lawsuit against Gerber and won for an undisclosed amount. At this point, Tom and Angie left the military and it wasn't long after that that the pair divorced in October of 1994. Now, before meeting Frank, Angie had married one more time to a man named Don, but this marriage was very short-lived. It lasted less than a year. So let's go to February of 2000. This is where Angie meets Frank and she's working as a receptionist at Angel Gate Academy. Some co-workers deemed her as a chameleon. So, okay, for instance, she had her eyes on this guy that they worked with and he was a real cowboy type. Okay, so he wore Western wear. He spoke with a drawl and she started wearing Western wear too and acting really country. She like put a country bumper sticker on her car and this went on until this guy got a girlfriend. So the next man that she laid eyes on was Frank and everybody knew Frank was a devout Christian. So Angie changed her country look to a more modest look. She started carrying around a Bible, quoting scripture, and even put a bunch of Jesus bumper stickers on her car. I think the bumper sticker thing is so extra. Okay, and so 
This dude, we'll call him Chris, the co-worker, he tried to warn Frank that Angie was not what she seemed. But Frank didn't listen. They had so much in common, Frank thought. They were both religious. They were both ex-military. They were both Hispanic, which, by the way, Angie was not even Hispanic. She was of Italian descent, but okay. And I know what you're thinking. Maybe Angie had a change of heart. A changed woman washed in the blood of Jesus. I mean, her and Frank even abstained from sex due to their Christian beliefs. So everyone thought. The truth, though, was that Angie wasn't a devoted Christian like Frank, and she wasn't abstaining for sex. She just wasn't having sex with Frank. She was having sex with her best friend's nephew, Jack. Jack had been just released from jail. Lovely. And, um, yeah, she was having an affair with him the entire time she was trying to woo Frank. So having no clue who he married, Frank was happy as ever to have an immediate family. He'd always wanted a family and now he had Angie, her nine-year-old daughter, but Angie really wasn't very fond of Frank. She constantly complained about him to her best friend, Jane. Okay, that's the um, aunt to her side piece, Jack. And Angie told them that Frank was too strict on her daughter and too controlling about money. When Jane asked why she didn't just divorce Frank and move on, Angie said that there would be nothing to gain and often talked about killing Frank for his life insurance policy instead of divorcing him. See, in June, her and Frank got life insurance policies naming each other as beneficiaries. Angie stood to make $250,000 if Frank died rather than got divorced. She tried really hard to get her lover, Jack, involved, but he had no interest in being a part of her plan. They did kind of spitball ideas, I think. I think Angie would go to her friend Jane's house, she would hook up with Jack, and they'd all sit around and hang out. And the first idea was that she was going to loosen the gas connection to the dryer in the garage. And I don't know what her plan was with that exactly, like how she would start a fire But she was planning to do that and blow up the home with Frank in it. However, as soon as Angie went home and actually loosened the gas connection like she talked about with her friends, Frank smelled gas and called a repairman who fixed the connection the next day. (laughs) Then, and this idea Angie spitballed to her friends too, Angie tried to poison Frank with oleander. Oleander is a shrub or a small tree commonly grown in subtropic areas because it's an extremely drought-resistant plant, and it makes for really good landscaping. So it's all over the coast of California. Angie and Frank's neighbor had a large oleander tree, and it actually overhung their fence line into Frank and Angie's yard. Again, oleander is extremely poisonous, and its side effect typically takes like four hours to go into effect after you ingest it. And the symptoms are, quote, Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, weakness, headache, stomach pain, serious heart problems, and many other side effects, according to Rx list. And when that didn't work the way Angie wanted to, she decided to go with the classic antifreeze. So antifreeze symptoms occur 3 to 12 hours after ingestion, severe symptoms occurring closer to 12 hours. Earlier symptoms include headache, fatigue, you're going to feel drunk, a lack of coordination, you're really groggy, you're throwing up, you're spatial slurred, you're getting nauseous. And then next, as your body breaks down the antifreeze, 
organ damage takes place, um, organ failure begins, and later symptoms are rapid breathing, inability to urinate, convulsions, a high heart rate, and possible comatose. So the couple met in February of 2000, and Frank started feeling ill September 5th of 2000. It was a Tuesday, and Frank was feeling really tired and groggy, and he came home from work early. On Wednesday, he was not feeling any better, and he was still tired and groggy. And Angie said, I thought maybe he had the flu. So she was just making him hot tea and soup. This is just a guess, but I believe the hot tea she was making him was actually with oleander. So she was slowly trying to poison him more with oleander. Wednesday night, Frank began throwing up. And by Thursday morning, Frank was so sick, he had to go to the hospital. He was vomiting profusely and had three episodes of explosive diarrhea. Okay. The hospital ran testing and found nothing significant. They diagnosed Frank with food poisoning and released him, encouraging Angie to give him lots of sports drinks like Gatorade. But no matter what Angie gave him, Frank just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And Angie was like calling their family and friends and said that she was nursing him back to health with soup and Gatorade. But she, in fact, had a concoction of oleander and the hot tea she was serving Frank and antifreeze in the Gatorade. She said it was about mm, 10 o'clock when Frank fell asleep in their bedroom. And remember, this is on Thursday night. She decided to sit down on the couch and watch Dateline or 2020 or something like that after checking on him. And after she checked on him, she actually began dozing off and she woke up in the living room around like 3 a.m. And she decided she was going to go to get in their bed. And when she went into their bedroom, she found Frank dead on the floor, face down, wearing just a t-shirt. He had blood from his nose and mouth and he was cold to the touch. So Angie then calls 911 and kept pretending to be Frank's devout Christian wife. She acted totally distraught over her husband Frank's untimely death, and she was at a complete loss for how this happened. She had no idea. He was just sick. She thought maybe he had the flu or food poisoning, and she was nursing him back to health, and she had no idea how this happened. When first responders got to their home, it was evident that Frank was already dead. He was unresponsive. There was pulled blood from his nose and mouth around. And you could actually see the settling of blood in his knees because he was face down. And when you are deceased, the blood flows like gravity. So anyway, Angie was upset, but she was strangely composed when she spoke to the police and first responders. Now, they didn't know really what to think of her, especially since they didn't know how Frank died. And his wife seemed to have no idea either. She explained how Frank had become sick, but was believed to just have food poisoning. She wanted to know how and why Frank died just as much as the police did. And she genuinely seemed that way. Like people thought she cared and she needed to get to the bottom of this. Angie wasted no time calling the insurance company to see when she can collect on Frank's life insurance and they actually informed her that there would only be a payout once Frank's death certificate was done. So as long as there is no foul play then um, she could get a death certificate from the coroner and that's what they would need. 
But first, the coroner had to determine the cause of death, and they couldn't. So everyone's waiting and waiting for the coroner's report, and police look through Angie and Frank's home for anything suspicious in the meantime. They didn't find anything in the home, and the coroner was completely stumped as to how Frank died. Um, the death was suspicious because Frank was really healthy. People described him to be completely health conscious. The coroner found no needle marks of an IV drug user, no head or brain injuries, no obvious trauma at all. And every toxicology report they ran came back normal. There was no signs of choking, strangulation, and infection, organ failure, nada. By the way, not only did the regular toxicology report come back clean, they did testing for everything they could think of, supposedly. So nothing was pointing to foul play. Um, to police, it was a total mystery. But Angie kept voicing to the police that she thought Frank had been killed by someone. She began calling more and more often and pressing harder and harder about it. And at this point, the Montebello PD was presiding over the case because this took place in Montebello, California. But um, they had no possibility of who did it and not enough resources, so they actually had to turn it over to the LAPD. Now, the LAPD went and interviewed Angie, and she told them about how she met Frank, their life together, yada, 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 and the days Frank was sick leading up to his death. She then... Angie pointed the finger at Frank's coworker Chris, saying she believes that he poisoned Frank with cookies and Gatorade that he laced. And by the way, Chris is a coworker who tried to warn Frank that Angie was a chameleon. And the reason Angie says she thinks it is Chris is because supposedly Frank had recently turned Chris in for inappropriate encounters he was having with minors at Angel Gate Academy. This is this is all what she's telling LAPD guys. Okay. She then casually brings up the coroner report and how she's struggling to get by with bills because she can't get Frank's life insurance policy without the coroner's report. Like she's trying to put some pressure on him. I think a few things strike the investigators as suspicious. The first follow-up with Chris at Angel Gate Academy there, they found there was no report um, by Frank against Chris for anything, let alone any report against Chris for being a dang pervert. Also, Chris and Frank were really good friends. Like he really liked and cared about Frank and he tried to warn him about Angela. And he, obviously Chris thinks Angela poisoned her. So that was really weird. Other than Angela's suggestion, nothing pointed to Frank being poisoned on Tuesday morning and she had clearly lied about the allegations Frank made about Chris at work. So they decided that they're going to press and look harder at Angie. They dig until they find her best friend, Jane. And y'all, Jane just spills. Okay, she just pops open. She tells them about Angie's affair with her nephew, Jack. How Angie doesn't even like Frank. And she talked openly and frequently about finding a way to kill him for his life insurance policy. She tried to blow up their house with Frank inside once, but he could smell the gas leak. Okay, she told them about all the different ways Angie talked about killing Frank, including oleander poisoning, okay? Police were so suspicious of Angie now, but the problem they were having is they don't quite know how she killed Frank, okay? Because they have tested for everything under the sun and they keep coming up blank. To close the case, they would need to know what Angie used to poison Frank with. 
So they devised a plan. They talked to Angie and act like she was their ally. Someone who could help them close the case on Frank's co-worker, Chris. And it was so easy to fool her, you guys. Oh my gosh. She thought she could manipulate and persuade officers into finding her innocent and framing an innocent man. So they call her and they told her they totally think it was Chris. And they just wish what they knew what Chris used to poison Frank. Okay. And Angie fell right into it. Angie said, well, I've been doing some research and... Maybe Frank was poisoned with that, oh, you know, that plant that like grows on the side of the road. Y'all, she acted like she didn't even know the name. She couldn't even remember the name was Oleander, supposedly. So October 9th, investigators drive to her house to speak with her in person, hoping to catch her in some more lies. And y'all, um, she was desperate for the case to be closed because she wanted life insurance. But when they got to her and Frank's house, Angie wasn't even there. She had literally moved out and you could tell she'd done it in a really big hurry. And she literally left all of Frank's things behind, like even sentimental things that somebody would probably want to have with them if they really loved and cared about that person. So then they're looking around the house and that's when police spot the oleander tree that is hanging really low over Frank and Angie's fence. It's definitely low enough that you could reach up and grab it. So then October 19th, investigators got a call from Angie. She had just gotten a disturbing anonymous call from a student at Angel Gate. And they told her, Chris told them himself that he killed Frank and could not be pinned for the murder. She also claimed the call was hard to hear because she had really bad reception but the caller said Chris used antifreeze. So police are really skeptical and they go looking into Angie's phone records, which showed there was never a call to Angie's cell phone at this time, even like remotely close to this time and nothing that could even be pinned back to someone near Angel Gate. So wow, she lied about something crazy that you could totally double check. Um, so medical examiners decide to run a test for oleander and antifreeze and Frank comes back positive for both. Okay, so not only did Frank test positive for both, but he actually had five to seven times the lethal amount it would take to poison a man his size. He was first poisoned at least 24 hours before he died and again six to seven hours before he died, which would have been around 9 or 10 p.m right before she said he went to bed. It's theorized Angie attempted to poison him with oleander by giving him several doses in his tea at first, and when that didn't work, she then had to turn to antifreeze, kind of like reluctantly. So Angie made it very clear when outlining the timeline from Tuesday to Friday night that once Frank got home, he wasn't with anybody but her, like nobody stopped by, um, he didn't go anywhere. It was just them. So we know that he had been poisoned at least 24 hours before he died. And again, six to seven hours before he died, meaning only Angela was in the vicinity. As police build their case against Angie, they again call and ask her for help with the case. And this time they said they needed some sort of proof that Chris knew Frank was going to be at Angel Gate. The particular day in question, the day that supposedly Chris poisoned Frank. 
So although Frank oversaw Wayward Kids at Angel Gate, he did not work for Angel Gate in particular. So he was not there regularly. I think he was like contracted by a third party company that he actually worked at. Like I think he technically worked at a middle school and would transport and then like kind of be like a case manager, I guess, for these kids. So Angie's like, dang, there must be something. Um, there's got to be some report or reason that Chris knew Frank was coming that day. You are so right. I just, I'll, I'll see if I can figure it out. So the police get off the phone with her and they call Chris and they tell Chris that, Hey, okay, Angie is trying to frame you for the murder of Frank by saying you poisoned him, but we know that there's no way that's true. And so they say, Hey, can you call and confront Angie and ask her why she's saying these things about you? Like, we'll record it for you so that we can get her reaction. And Chris, he seemed kind of nervous, but he agreed. So Chris calls Angie with police listening in and he asks her, why are you telling people that I poisoned Frank? And Angie basically just refused to talk to him. She just said, because she thinks he did it, but she can't ask for why he did it or how he did it and he repeatedly asks why she thinks that or how she came up with that idea and she literally is like I just do I just do and she hungs up so that was rather unexciting right until then as soon as she got off the phone with Chris she immediately called investigators and she said hey I just got off the phone with Chris by the way a conversation they were literally listening in on and recording and she lied and she said, Chris just called me and he threatened me. He told me that, you know, she shouldn't have told the police that he was the one who killed Frank and she better watch her back. Dude, she had no idea that the police were onto her. So while formulating a pretty good case against Angie for the death of Frank and attempt to frame his coworker, Chris, they call Angie back and they another time and they just make her think that they're eating out of the palm of her hand. They say the only part of the investigation, a.k.a. to Angie, the only thing keeping her away from that insurance policy was that they needed proof Chris knew Frank would be at Angelgate. And dude, like magic, an anonymous fax came in because, you know, this is the second time they've mentioned it to her and it had been sent from a Staples, which was conveniently one mile from Angie's house. So it was actually the facts was a list of faculty coming to Angelgate Tuesday, September 5th with Frank's name on it. And investigators decide, okay, fine, we got enough to arrest Angie for the killing of Frank. You know, we have the evidence that there was Oleander and antifreeze in his body. She put herself as the only person around Frank in the time he had to have been poisoned they had the recorded phone call that she lied about and then they obviously had circumstantial evidence that she was the one who sent the anonymous facts right so Wednesday February 7th of 2001 they actually called Angie the investigators did and say say hey we have enough evidence to arrest Chris on the murder of Frank and wanted to know if you would like to come with us to witness it yourself and she totally agreed when they got to her apartment, they actually opened the door and they arrested her. And in her purse was a receipt with a matching fax number to the anonymous fax from the Staples a mile from her house. Wow, she couldn't even throw away the receipt, guys. Like, this is lazy. So, 
I'm not going to lie. The evidence did seem a bit circumstantial, a little bit wobbly, other than the poison being in his body and her being the only one within the vicinity of him. They asked Angie's lover, Jack, to testify that she wanted to kill Frank and spoke often about it, but he refused to. But don't worry, because Jane came in clutch, Jack's aunt, and she actually agreed that she would testify against Angie. So fast forward, okay, this gets so weird. Angie's in jail, right? And she finds out her best friend's going to testify against her. So she has someone three-way call Jane and Angie basically insinuates that if she testifies against her, she would be culpable for the murder as well because she would basically be saying, yeah, Angie told me she was going to kill him and I didn't say anything. Then Angie basically threatens her that, uh, you know, she will have her killed if she testifies against her. So this got Angie, she lost all her phone privileges for that. Like, ah, uh, that's what you get. So before long, Angie actually landed herself in SEG and SEG is segregated population. That's where you're away from um, everybody else in prison. I think you have to like sell by yourself and stuff. And she starts talking nonstop to a woman in the cell next to her. And you guys, by the way, side note, the woman in the cell next to her was in jail for beating her three-year-old child with a shovel. And even she thought Angie was a terrifying bitch and Angie told the woman next to her in the cell that her whole life story okay and how it led up to her killing Frank like she told her about her childhood and she even told her how she killed Frank so next she told the woman about her her best friend is going to testify against her and she's trying to find someone to kill Jane she offers the celly a large sum of money to do it First $25,000, then $30,000, and then she even offers to buy the woman a home with the life insurance payout because it has grown so much interest that she's going to have tons of money, she says. So, the Sally next door agrees to Angie, and she says that um, Angie gives her directions to Jane's home. She tells her what it looks like. She tells her how to get inside, who's going to be there, and... For some reason, the inmate was like really freaked out by Angie because she actually decided to tell on her like she turned her in. And so then the jail called the police and they asked the inmate if she would record her conversation with Angie and the woman agreed and she coined Angie the name the Wicked Widow. And so the woman recorded her next conversation and Angie even offered her advice on how to kill Jane. She suggested that the lady have her thug friends or herself loosen the gas connectors and set Jane's entire house on fire, which, by the way, her kids would have been there, her whole family. She was telling this lady to have them blown up. Okay, so police go even farther after hearing this recording and they send in an undercover. These police are so extra. LAPD and they sent in an undercover police officer who was pretending to be a hitman a hitman who snuck in to speak to Angie by pretending to be her new lawyer okay so like she shows up to visitor room and there's this guy who's like oh I'm her new lawyer okay but no it was actually an undercover police officer and so 
The undercover officer shows Angie a fake photo that they took of Jane who looked like she'd been shot in the head. And at first, Angie pretended to be like super confused. But then she said she'd have to get the insurance money first before she could pay anybody. And she was seriously like concerned with the way she looked. And she was like, oh my gosh, I don't normally look this bad. And kind of like flirting with this guy who supposedly killed Jane for her. Like this is so crazy. Now the mountain of evidence Angie piled up against her was overwhelming. When the court was presented with the circumstantial evidence of the timeline of Frank's death, how Angie was the only one around and potentially poisoned him, plus how she tried to frame Frank's co-worker Chris, repeatedly lied, and the testimony of her best friend Jane against her, the cellmate next door that pretended to hire somebody, and then the hitman who was actually an undercover cop. Wow, the jury was probably like, this is the craziest shit ever. So the jury definitely found her guilty of murdering Frank, murder in the first degree, and tampering with a witness. Very serious. She was sentenced to death by lethal injection. In California, you get an automatic appeal, and she did get another sentencing hearing, and they actually decided to uphold, not only uphold her conviction, but uphold her death penalty sentence. Yes. By the way, um, the Gerber lawsuit case. So after they arrested Angie for the murder of Frank, they were going through her paperwork, and they had found... It was actually, I believe, a witness that the defense was going to potentially use for the trial. And they had somebody look into the, an expert, look into the pacifier. Now, remember, her daughter had choked on a Gerber pacifier that was recalled. And when this expert examined the pacifier, they actually found that somebody must have forcibly broken this pacifier by repeatedly, like, stomping or hitting it against something or applying like hundreds of pounds of pressure. So it was believed that Angie actually killed her infant daughter, whom she'd already taken out a life insurance policy on. Not to mention, I believe it was in the last couple years leading up to her meeting Frank, she had d- attempted multiple slip and fall lawsuits. So this lady was just bad news bear. All right, guys, I'll talk to you next week. Bye.